Reading is taken this evening from Romans chapter 7, verses 7 to 25. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is in sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do, No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is the sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, To the Welsh who are here this evening... Many congratulations. And if you'd like to join the Simple English Study out the back and across the road, <laughs> we'll wait for you to go. And if uh, you're not aware that the Welsh beat the English at rugby to, uh, yesterday, I'm sorry to have uh, ruined your evening. Now, tonight's uh, passage is a, uh, an interesting, indeed difficult passage. And we're going to need God's help to understand it. So let's pray that God will help us. Dear God, how we thank you for your word, the Bible. Your ways are so much higher than our own, and often we struggle to understand what you've written. So we pray that 
your own Holy Spirit, here with us this evening, would help us to understand what he calls to be written. So we pray you'd help us to work together to understand this passage and indeed to think and to live in the light of it. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here at the Bible Talks, um, our primary aim is to make Christ known to one another and to others for the glory of God. And um, making Christ known is the, the, the passion of all that we do. Uh, we long to bring our friends to know Christ. So in, in a few weeks' time, we'll uh, run a series of events specifically for those who don't yet know Christ to come along and to, to hear about Christ. More of that in the future. Uh, why do we do that, though? Why do we think that people in London have their greatest need is for Christ? Why do we think that? I mean, we're delighted to help those who are out in the streets. Why do we think that we also need to give them Christ? Or put it another way, some of us who were at the Gospel Partnerships Day yesterday uh, over at St. Helens um, will have heard that we're endeavoring to mount a nationwide mission initiative in 2010. Uh, for my sins, I'm chairing the group that's uh, steering that. And we're praying that that will be a massive push across the country to uh, reach uh, people with Christ. But when you read your newspaper, you're bound to wonder, is Christ really what they need? When you read of the breakdown in society and you read of the, uh, the utter collapse of the family and you, you read of the stabbings and the muggings and you read of the, of the corruption, you kind of think, actually, what this country really needs is a bit of moral reform. And if you know anything about the Bible, you might say, actually, what this country needs is God's law. I mean, wouldn't the Ten Commandments be good for a start? I mean, wouldn't it be good to have a government that had the Ten Commandments enshrined in its uh, social policy? And uh, wouldn't it be good if schools had the Ten Commandments as compulsory assemblies? Shouldn't be working to to make sure that that the schools have the Ten Commandments taught to them in classes and assemblies and so on? In fact... Come to think of it, perhaps you hadn't thought of it before, but isn't that what this church needs above all? The Ten Commandments, a bit of, of the law of the Bible. I mean, look at us. You look at the, uh, in the, I know we look all right on the outside, but inside there's a lot of moral mess. You kind of think what we really need is the law, the law of God. We need a bit of discipline to stand up against the, the moral corruption in the world. You might be saying, is that what I need? As a human being, as an individual, whether you're very familiar with these things or very new to these things, is what I need really the law to bring discipline to my life? Well, I guess those, um, those questions might well have been going through the minds of the readers of this letter, written by the Apostle Paul in the late 50s AD, almost certainly from Corinth to the Christians in Rome. If you read the letter, you'll know that uh, the Apostle was about to uh, set off on his third missionary journey, as it turned out, his last missionary journey, to return from Greece via Jerusalem with a gift. He'd get no further, in fact, but um, uh, he was intending to go on to Rome and then to launch a mission into Western Europe, to Spain, to proclaim Christ, the gospel of Christ. And his readers must have been asking themselves, why does he want to do that? Why does Europe need Christ? And come to think of it, they'd heard some rumors about the Apostle Paul. Almost certainly they'd heard that um, he was saying that the law didn't bite on Christians in the way that it did with Israel. 
What's he saying about the law? Has he given up on the law? Doesn't he believe in the law? Does he not care about sin? What does the apostle actually teach? As in this letter, the apostle, you see, is making clear what his gospel message is, why the whole world desperately needs it. And in doing so, he explains the place of the law. And that's what we find out in this passage. Now, you need to know the background, because if you just chop it up, sometimes we misunderstand things. The whole of the letter, if you remember, is about the gospel of God. Because that's what the apostle wants to preach, and he wants the Romans to know why they should support the preaching of the gospel of Christ. So do you remember at the beginning he said, look, the gospel of God is all about the Son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's the power of God for salvation for anyone who believes it. Because in it is revealed the righteousness of God that we all need. Why do we do that, need that? Well, remember chapters 1 to to 3, he explained that the whole world is unrighteous. None of us is acceptable to God the way we are. Whether we're pagan or religious or Jewish, we're all unrighteous by degrees. We desperately need what we haven't got, the righteousness of God. But it's been made available, says chapter 3, in Christ. Well, what glorious news in chapter 3 when we hear that in Christ the righteousness of God is revealed for anybody who'll trust in him for their righteousness and not in themselves. Indeed, to trust in him by faith as it always has been, chapter 4. Right back to Abraham. This righteousness is ours by faith in Christ. And indeed, therefore, chapter 5, the great news is that through Christ we can have peace with God and we can enjoy the hope of the future. Even through suffering we have this hope of being with God forever because that dreadful legacy of sin and death that comes from Adam has been overwhelmed by the legacy of Christ in righteousness and eternal life. But that raises the question, okay, but what about then the place of sin and law and death in the lives of Christians? And in chapters 6 to 8, the apostle is dealing with the place of sin and the law and death in the life of Christians who are justified, that is acceptable to God through faith in Christ. He's been saying, if you remember in chapter 6, well, if if we're already saved through Christ, does that mean then that we just carry on sinning? He says, absolutely not. For, you see, by faith in Christ, we share in the death of Christ. And therefore, we've died to the power of sin, which means, he explains, we've got a new life. We've got a new freedom from sin. We've got a new future to look forward to. So it's totally inappropriate to carry on sinning. Instead, we're to count ourselves dead to sin. Does that mean the apostle doesn't care about sin? Sin doesn't matter. Not at all, he says. Sin matters because we're not under the rule of sin anymore. Once you become a Christian, you're under the rule of God. And the wages of sin is death. You don't want to go back to work for him. You don't want to work for sin. You want to work for your new Lord, God. For his gift is eternal life. And then in chapter 7 he says, in fact, because we've shared in the death of Christ, the rule of the law over us has ended too. And so the law is ended. It's like, it's like when somebody dies in a marriage, you're free then to remarry because your partner has died and the, the old partnership is dead. And the apostle says it's like that with the law. The old partnership with the law is dead. And in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 7 he says something absolutely shocking 
to his readers. Look at chapter 7 and verse 5 with me. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. That's astonishing. He's actually saying that the law actually arouses sinful passions in us. So you wouldn't want to go back to live under law because the law actually arouses sinful passions. And look at verse 6. But now by dying to what once bound us, that's sin, we've been released from the law so that we serve in a new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So the apostle is saying, actually, the law was great for a period, but now we've been released from the rule of the law of Moses to serve in a new way in the power of the Spirit, which he'll talk about a great deal more in chapter 8. Now, this is really shocking stuff. If you're Jewish and living in the church in Rome, or if you know anything and have some respect for the Old Testament law of God, To hear Paul saying that actually we've been released from the law to now live by the Spirit is a shocking thing to hear. Surely law is what we need. Isn't the law good? Didn't God give the law? Isn't that what everybody needs to know the law of God? So the apostle goes on in our section now to explain, yes, the law is good. The law is good. But now we need the Spirit. Now, we'll look at that in a moment, just to to say, it's worth saying before we get into the text, that uh, Paul is answering these questions from personal experience as a Christian. Uh, You may know that this passage is uh, greatly disputed and hotly disputed, and etc., etc., but in the end, he does seem to be talking about his life as a Christian. The reasons for that are that chapters 5 to 8 are all about life as a justified Christian. So the whole context is of, of living as a Christian. Moreover, in much of this chapter, he speaks in the present tense. He's talking about his experience now, about the normal experience of a justified Christian. And indeed, when you get to the, uh, to the end of verse 25, it's very plain that he's speaking as a Christian. These can only be the words of a Christian. Uh, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. He's describing his experience as a Christian. I want to spend most of my time actually in verses 7 to 13, so don't worry, we'll be nearly finished when we get to verse 13. And essentially he says to begin, look, the law is good. Look with me at verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. And then what he basically says in the next few verses is, look, the law identifies sin But our sin uses law to increase. So verses 7 to 8. Let's look at verse 7. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law, for I wouldn't have known what coveting really was if the law hadn't said, don't covet. See, you think about coveting, you know, longing for what other people have got. You know, coveting, that is, um, well, everybody does that. I mean, our whole capitalist system is built on this whole idea. I want what other people have got. That's what drives me. Isn't that right? Isn't everybody coveting? I mean, when you watch uh, grand designs on the television or when you watch uh, Top Gear or whatever it is, or, you know, when you go shopping or... um, Isn't the whole point that 
we're not just supplying our needs. We want what other people have got. The whole advertising industry is built on this. Let me show you what this person's got because then you'll long for it. Isn't that what it's about? So, so much of our society, so much of the way we've been brought and bred to think is about coveting. We want what other people have got. Why on earth would you think that was wrong? Everybody does that. That's what drives the wheels of the, of the city. Until we read the law of God that it says that actually no coveting's wrong. Because actually coveting, that is longing for what other people have got, you know, their partner, their job, their car, their clothes, their situation, longing for what they've got is essentially to say that God isn't looking after me. That God doesn't love me enough to give me what I need. See, coveting is really saying, I need what they've got because God's just neglected me. So actually, it's wrong. But you wouldn't know that, you see, unless the Lord told you. As you read in God's word, that's wrong, because this is God's perspective, it's not ours. So the law, you see, is like the doctor, you see, diagnoses the problem and says, you know, what you're doing, the problem, one of the problems you've got is that you're coveting. Really? Everybody does that. No, it's wrong. It does you no good. The law identifies sin. Moreover, verse 8, sin then uses the law. Look at verse 8. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin's dead. So the apostle is saying, look, the law is good, but our sinful nature then uses the opportunity. So our, our, our sinful natures here are sort of incited or provoked to do what is wrong. Now, let's, let's face it. Isn't it more exciting doing some things when you know they're wrong? I mean, let's whisper this, but it's dreadful, isn't it? How, do, how perverse are we? You know, when you know that something's wrong, therefore it feels dangerous when you do it. And therefore it's more exciting. It's risky. It's slightly kind of, we talk about wicked, don't we? And we kind of, we get all excited about it. Why are we so excited about it? Because we're sinful. And when we know that something's wrong, then to do it makes it more enjoyable. I was uh, 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 reading on a uh, parenting book about a father who was, uh, took his uh, son to a basketball game. And uh, the, uh, uh, the, before the game, they sort of introduced, showed him around the, the court downstairs, everyone was milling, milling around. And he explained to the boy that uh, the, the basketball game would be carried on within these, these four lines. There are the sort of hoops and so on. And then they went up and stood in the stands. And he said to his son, as he went up, whatever you do, you mustn't go inside the, those lines because that's the court. He said it quite plain. Whatever you do, don't go inside those. So then they went right up to the back of the stands, you see, and they sat there. And then at half time, the little boy said, can I go, can I go Dad? And he said, yeah. And the boy was being particularly stroppy. And it ran all the way down the stands, all the way down the stands, across to the basketball pitch. Do you know what he did next? He looked up at his father, and then he put his foot out, and he went, <laughs> and stepped over the line. Why did he do that? She deliberately ran all the way down, put his, hand, put his foot over that line in order to rebel against the father. And in the same way, we don't like to be restricted by the law of God. And so we deliberately break those laws as, as an assertion of our independence. I like to do what I want to do. And so sin, has, you see, has used the opportunity of the law to get us to break God's law. And so to increase the sin within us. Then in verses 9 to 10, he says essentially, actually the law offered life, but sin used it to bring death. Look at verse uh, 9. Once I was alive apart from law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. 
for sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment, put me to death. Now, the Apostle Paul may well be aware at this point that his experience is parallel to the experience of Adam when Adam was given the law, and parallel to Israel when Israel was given to the law. But he's speaking here of his own experience in learning the law. You see, when he received the law, as he reflects on experience, he realizes that the Old Testament law that offered life to all who keep it. And if you could keep it, you would have life from God. But God always knew that no one can keep it. And his own failure to keep the law, you see, therefore condemned him to death. Verse 11, his sin provoked this disobedience, deceiving him to thinking that he might actually keep it. But you see, the law doesn't provide the power to keep the law. God knew that. He didn't give the law for people to save themselves. He gave the law to show his people their need of a saviour. Because the law does not have the power in it to help us keep it. It identifies what is wrong with us and our need of a saviour. And so as a doctor diagnoses the sickness and says, you need the medicine. I can't help you, but you need the cure. The cure is the medicine. And so the law, you see, identifies the sin and says, you need Christ. But the law itself cannot provide the power to keep it. And so, you see, sin is parasitical. Sin is like a parasite upon the law of God. And it uses the opportunity of the law to provoke us to sin and to condemn us to death. And therefore, he concludes in verse 12, so then the law is holy righteous and good. There's nothing wrong with the law. It's the law of God. It's good. But it doesn't have the power for us to keep it. Verse 13, did that which is good then become death to me? Has God's good thing become something deadly? By no means, he says. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment, we might become utterly sinful. See, the law was given so that we might recognize that we are sinful and condemned to death and go to the Savior. Now, he then justifies this from um, uh, three aspects of his experience. And um, I've put those points there to summarize the things that he's saying. And actually, they're really rather encouraging. You see, what the apostle is saying, you see, he's showing the nature of normal Christian experience. And part of it is the reality of sin within. I saw a program the other day on television called Spendaholics. Anybody see that program, Spendaholics? Taking some guy who's just spending far too much money on things and showing him what he actually spends his money on. And so they, they sort of um, uh, ordered 100 taxis, and the 100 taxis parked outside his house. They opened the door, walked out, there's 100 taxis. These are the taxis you use each week. That's why you're broke. You're absolutely horrified, you see. God, do I really do that? Yeah, that's what you do. That's why you're broke. And they took him down to the bar, you see, and they lined up all the drinks that he buys for people in a year. He's got a mile of glasses. You see, you wonder why you're broke? That's why you're broke. He said, I don't buy all those drinks, do I? He said, those are the drinks you buy? Oh, it's absolutely astonishing, you see. Well, you see, the law is like that, identifying how bad things are in us. And now the apostle speaks of what that's like in normal experience. Three things. Firstly, verses 14 to 17, we cannot do what we want to do. Read with me from verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, But I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I don't understand what I do, for what I want to do, I don't do. But what I hate, 
I do. And if I do what I don't want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it's no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. See, the apostle is basically saying here, look, we cannot do what we want to do. That is normal Christian life. It's actually very encouraging. Here is one of the greatest Christians that ever lived, the apostle Paul, and he says, I just can't do what I want to do. Verse 14, he says, look, I'm still a slave, addicted to sin. I can't stop my sinning. Now, it's a generalization because we'll go on in chapter 8 to say that actually by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can put to death our sin. But nevertheless, there's a general distressing feature about being a Christian. That sin is never entirely gone. You know, when you starve one sin to death, another, another uh, comes up. Then you feel proud of the fact you starve that sin to death. And so it goes on and on. It's like a kind of ever-multiplying thing. So how are your New Year's resolutions going? Anybody here doing New Of course, if you have if the lowest denominator New Year's resolution, you know, I'm, I'm going to breathe for the whole year, then you might have managed that. But if anybody made any kind of serious moral resolution, how's that going? I mean, I made, I made the resolution that we should read our Bibles more. I remember saying to you, let's all resolve to read our Bibles more. And you all nodded and said, yeah, let's. How's it going? End of January, how's it going? Well, I've read my Bible a bit more, but to be honest, it's a bit pathetic, really. See, why is that? I just, I want to do it. I just can't. Anybody else have that experience or am I the only one? See a few more nods. Anybody else have that experience or am I the only one? There's loads of people nodding. See, verse 15, despite our best intentions, we can't do what we want to do. Verse 16, I do recognize the law is good. Oh, no, that's a change. To recognize that the law is good, you see, is a mark of the Spirit of God in us. That actually we recognize the law is good. We want to do the right thing. There was a time, maybe many of us can remember it, before we became Christians, when we didn't want to do the right thing. We thought the law of God was stupid. In fact, we used to say so. And if we didn't say so, we certainly thought it. <laughs> Why does God want to spoil my life? I don't want God running my life for me. But now it's different. Now I know that God's law is good. And I want to keep it. If we don't want to keep it, we're not a Christian yet. But one of the marks of someone who's a Christian is that we want to keep God's law. It's what was promised in the Old Testament, you see. That he'd put his spirit in us so that we'd want to keep his law. But we can't keep it perfectly. You see, I don't want to be evil. I want to be holy. In other words, it's worth saying that Christian experience is is like this. I'm different, but I'm not perfect. I'm not what I used to be. I'm different. I'm not what I once was. I do want to keep God's law. I just can't do what I want to do. And I think that's really encouraging. Because that's normal Christian experience. And you thought sitting there, you're the only person who couldn't do what you wanted to do. And actually, that's normal. It's the same for all of us. The second thing he says, verses 18 to 20, is that our sinful nature remains. Verse 18. I know that nothing good lives in me, that's in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what's good, but I can't carry it out. What I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I don't want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I don't want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it's sin living in me that does it. In other words, our sinful nature remains. He says, verse 18, look, I have an utterly, utterly corrupt sinful nature. It's not that I could get, couldn't get any worse. I could get even worse. It's just that every part of my sinful nature is sinful. You know, they're not, sort of, not parts of me that are perfectly all right. 
You know, as you know, Catholic Church, I think, teaches that, you know, your, your mind's okay, it's just your body that's wrong. That's not true. Our minds and our bodies are corrupted. All of us is corrupted with selfishness. Verse 19, the evil I don't want to do, I just keep doing it. I was trying to think, how do you illustrate this then? I suppose it's a bit like this. You know one of those great big um, old diving suits? You know the big old ones, with massive great big metal shoes and huge weights around your, around your uh, waist. And, uh, you know, one of those big metal hats that you, you put on, yeah, and then weights around your wrist. It's keep you on the bottom of the sea. You know the ones I mean? I, I, being a Christian, you know, in one sense, it's a bit like walking around in one of those boots. You're aware that you're kind of clumping around in one of those great big diving suits. You know, because you've still got the sinful nature. And it stops you doing what you want to do. You want to run and skip and jump for God, but you cannot because you're weighed down by this sinful nature. It stops you doing what you long in your heart to do which is to serve God. But you see, it's my sinful nature that weighs me down, but I am a new person. When you become a Christian, you see, God creates new life, and we are a new creation. You see, the whole of me is not my sinful nature. There's more to me now than my sinful nature. I am alive. I am a new creation, and so I want to please God. But I'm still left with this crusty old sinful nature that I long to be free of. So our sinful nature remains, but I am more than my sinful nature, and so are you if you're a Christian. Thirdly, therefore, our flesh is at war with the law. Verse 21. So I find this law or principle at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? And then you can imagine sort of standing up and throwing his arms up. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He'll rescue me one day. Our flesh, you see, is at war with the law. Verse 21, evil is always with me. It's the monkey on my back. It's the maggot in my soul. I can't get rid of it. And you can't get rid of it either. It goes with you everywhere, wherever you go. Don't you even find, even when you pray, your mind wanders to something disgusting? And Oh, goodness sake, even when I'm praying, I'm not free of this thing. Anybody else have that experience? And therefore, you see, there's civil war within Civil war, you see, between the sinful nature that remains and the law. Waging war against the law of my mind. Make it waging war, you see, with my new being. There is a civil war. Therefore, the, the common experience of the Christian, you see, is that I, in my inner being, my new creation, I want to keep God's law. But my sinful nature is at war with me. And so my experience is of constant conflict and struggle within. It's funny, you know, because I think before we become a Christian, by and large, I know there are lots of disappointments, but by and large we're more content with ourselves and struggling with God and struggling with everybody else. But actually when you become to Christ, I think it changes. And actually we have peace with God and peace with other people. And now we have this new struggle because there's this new being, this new creation within me. I am a new person. I'm renewed. And so now I struggle with my sinful nature, and my common experience is one of tug of war 
and agony within. And therefore, verse 24, he cries out in the agony, the wretchedness of sin. What a wretched man I am. Anybody know that? You've gone to bed crying yourself to sleep. Or you've finally hit your room on your own, you just throw yourself on the ground, you cry out to the Lord for his mercy and forgiveness. What a wretched man I am. If only I could be free of this wretched sin. I've gone and said those things again. I spoke to my father the way I, I prayed I wouldn't. I've gone and done it the same thing again. Why did I speak, treat him like that? Those colleagues, that boyfriend, you know, why can't I get free of it? What a wretched man I am. But, praise God, this is a temporary war. It'll soon be over. Because thanks be to God, Jesus Christ our Lord is coming back. And when he comes back, he's going to unscrew all the screws around that great big helmet and take it off. He's going to take all those weights off you. He's going to unstrap that whole wretched thing and take it off. And we'll be free from our sinful nature forevermore. It's striking to me that when we proclaim Jesus Christ our Lord, which is the gospel, remember chapter 1, we not only proclaim his conquest of sin and death on the cross, we also therefore proclaim his return one day to free us fully and finally from sin and death in our lives. What a day that will be. Won't that be great when Jesus comes back? To finally rescue us from this sin that weighs us down. And so you see, people need Christ, not the law. The law is good, but the law never gave the power to keep it. People need Christ. The reason they need Christ is because Christ has delivered us from the consequences of our breaking the law on the cross. And one day he'll return to deliver us from the presence of sin and death in our lives. And, chapter 8, in the meantime, he'll give us his Holy Spirit to do what the law could never help us do, which is to be like Christ. The uh, parallel is often made between, in the Second World War, you know, after the D-Day landings, when victory was assured, and as the armies rolled into to Berlin, before the final victory, there was a period of waiting in between, and we live in that in-between time. You see, the struggle within is actually a good sign. For the struggle within us is the assurance that the Spirit of God is within us. The struggle is actually a sign of health, that one day we will be free of it forever. And therefore, don't be secretive. Don't be secretive about your struggles. You see, many of us are sitting here tonight thinking, yeah, I know, but my struggle with sin is it's unique to me. Nobody else is as evil as I am. Do you know, it's not true. We all have our different struggles, but do you know everybody else here has the same struggles? We all have this wretched struggle with sin, and we need one another's support to fight and to deal with it and to overcome those struggles in the power of the Holy Spirit. So there's no need to be secretive. We can talk with one another about how to struggle with those sins and to overcome them. And don't despair. Don't despair, because actually the fact that you're struggling with your sinful nature is a sign of the presence of the Spirit. If you weren't struggling, if you're, not, if you're here tonight and you're not struggling with your sinful nature, you're not a Christian. If you are a Christian, you'll be struggling with your sinful nature because God has created that conflict within you. And don't give up, because Christ is coming back one day. And he'll rescue you from this sinful nature. And in the meantime, as we'll see in chapter 8, he's given us his Spirit We can do battle. We can overcome sin. We'll never be perfect. But we can win some skirmishes and some battles on the way. We can put to death the sin that's in our lives before Christ returns. 
And so he concludes. Normal Christian experience, verse 25. I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. In my gospel thinking, you see, in my new creation, I belong to God's law. I want to keep God's law. But in my sinful nature, I still am addicted to sin. You see, we have two masters. But we need to understand these two masters are not the same. One master is finished, is doomed, due to end, when we die or when Christ returns. The other, you see, will last forevermore. We live in the overlap between two ages, between the era in which we were under the mastery of sin and death and law, and the new era, which is the era of the risen Christ. In other words, it's a bit like Camilla and Amanda. You see, the last few months, you see, you know, Camilla used to rule the office. This last week, there was an overlap between, you see, Camilla and Amanda taking over for the next few months. So there's an overlap. We live in that over, over, overlap period. We've had two masters in the church office. But you see, things are different, you see, because Camilla's days were numbered. <laughs> and I knew it. Camilla was on her way out. So when she said to me, Richard, make me a cup of coffee, will you? I can say to her, I'm sorry, Matt, uh, Camilla. I know you're still here for this week, but your days are numbered. And now I'm going to make coffee for Amanda. <laughs> and not for you. You see, I've been living in this overlap period this last week, but I haven't been working for Camilla. I've been working for Amanda. Because Amanda is my master forevermore. So to speak. And that's how it is as a Christian. We live in the overlap of the ages. Right? Sin remains. My sinful nature still remains. But its days are numbered. Soon that sinful nature will be gone. My new master is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we live for him. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Lord God in heaven, how we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We know what it is to feel wretched because of the presence of our sinful nature. We thank you, Lord, for this reality check. Thank you that this experience which we know as your children, that the sinful nature remains, and we just can't do the good things we want to do. We thank you for reminding us that Christ is coming back and one day will free us from this wretched sinful nature. And in the meantime, Lord, we do pray that we would therefore live for our new master, live for you and not for sin, as we shall be learning that in the power of the Holy Spirit we will renew our battle with sin because the mastery of sin is ended and the days of its presence are numbered. How we thank you that we shall one day be free of that sinful nature, but thank you also for explaining that it is still with us. And that's why it's such a struggle to be the way we want to be, which is like Jesus. And so we pray, Lord, you'd help us not to be secretive, help us to encourage one another, to keep fighting, to struggle with our particular sins. Help us not to despair. Help us to remember that our sinful nature is doomed. Help us not to give up fighting, but in the power of your spirit to keep fighting until we see the Lord Jesus when he finally delivers us and removes that sinful nature from us. And how we praise you and thank you for him. We ask you that in the coming weeks you give us opportunities to speak not of Old Testament law, which does not give the power to obey it, but to speak of Christ, who has given us his spirit, that we might become like him. 
We ask it in his name and for his glory alone. Amen.